Hello and welcome to the third part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Yesterday, we did a detailed review of the most influential epidemiological work, the Imperial College Report, that sent the world into lockdown. We saw how they kept changing their key parameters, their case number estimates, their reproduction number, and their doubling rate every few days. We saw how they switched from looking at case data to death data after belatedly acknowledging that case data was unreliable, but without accounting for the fact that death data was unreliable too. <clears throat> we saw how key parameters like the percentage of hospitalized patients that would need ventilators were decided simply by calling up some random doctor and asking him what he thought. We saw how unconvincing the attempts of the Imperial College epidemiologists were at proving that suppression measures were driving down the reproduction number. And finally, we saw how their claims about herd immunity completely contradicted their theory about the reproduction number, the R. First, they said that we had to drive the R value to below 1 with suppression. And then they said that this was preventing herd immunity. And so we had to stay in indefinite lockdown until a vaccine or drugs were found. <clears throat> so, as I said yesterday, none of this makes any sense. We find ourselves at the end of March and about three weeks of suppression measures in the position of having, according to these epidemiologists, driven the R down to close to 1 in a fraction of the time that was anticipated, but no closer to the end of the epidemic than when we first started listening to the epidemiologists. <clears throat> so, where does this leave us? Is there a COVID-19 pandemic? Or is it all a fantasy of the epidemiologists? It's not a fantasy, at least not entirely, but this torturous journey through the morass of epidemiological calculations leaves us none the wiser from where we began. <clears throat> Do you remember where we began? With news from China of a new and lethal disease that was racing through the populace. Lots of people were dying. But it wasn't just the numbers of people that caught our attention. It was the disease, novel, incurable, and lethal. For the first time since the discovery of antibiotics, after nearly a century's suzerainty over communicable disease, we were faced with the prospect of an incurable and deadly of infection spreading through us. So, in the beginning, there were two things, the multitudes falling ill and the disease. What makes the epidemic, the multitudes or the disease? Chicken or egg? The answer is not so obvious as you might think. Even today, <clears throat> months and at least half a million exponential graphs on, more people are dying from tuberculosis diarrheal diseases, 
and malaria in developing countries in South Asia and Africa, and from heart attacks and cancer in all countries every day than from COVID-19. <clears throat> and the difference is massive. In South Asia and Africa, annual deaths from tuberculosis and diarrheal diseases are more than their COVID-19 deaths by the tens and even hundreds of thousands. In African countries, like the Democratic Republic of Congo, yearly malaria deaths are in the tens of thousands and cases can be in the millions. Yearly deaths from non-communicable diseases all over the world, including the richest countries, are in the hundreds of thousands, going into the millions for bigger countries like the USA and India. We speak of Ebola epidemics in West Africa, <clears throat> but cases and deaths have numbered in the lower hundreds in three of the five Ebola outbreaks since 1976. The biggest outbreak was in 2014-2016, where the cases numbered about 10,000 to 14,000 in different countries, a fraction compared with other diseases in Africa. The number is so small that it doesn't even figure under a separate head in WHO estimates for the disease burden for these countries. <clears throat> so, it's not just about the numbers of people affected by a disease, whether big or small. In our minds, that's not what makes a disease into an epidemic. The difference between COVID-19 and Ebola on the one hand <clears throat> and other diseases like tuberculosis, diarrheal disease, malaria, cancer and heart disease on the other hand is that the latter are either treatable or not contagious. <clears throat> but what distinguishes an epidemic from any other spreading disease is not even just a question of its treatability or contagiousness. AIDS is an incurable infectious disease. According to World Health Organization estimates, millions of people across the world are infected by the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. And not just in Africa. According to WHO estimates, nearly 10 lakh people in the US have HIV AIDS. This number is about 9 lakh for Brazil and over 1 lakh for Italy, Spain and France. <clears throat> for listeners from outside India, 1 lakh is 100,000, five zeros, and 1 crore is 10 million, seven zeros. <clears throat> These AIDS numbers are massive, but we don't think of AIDS as being an epidemic in these countries. What could be the reason for that? AIDS takes decades to manifest, and with antivirals, you can be HIV positive for years without falling ill. So AIDS can be managed, but COVID-19 can kill you in 20 days flat. So the speed at which a disease acts on the body, besides its lethality, incurability, and infectiousness, are what separates epidemic diseases in our imagination from other ones. <clears throat> I said that AIDS was manageable, unlike COVID-19. But although the progress of uh, SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, in the body is as yet unmanageable, 
it is manageable in another way. COVID-19 is at least putatively manageable as we know how it transmits through human contact. Knowing how a disease transmits immediately raises questions, poses moral dilemmas, and engages our emotions of self-preservation in a way that not knowing does not. <clears throat> we don't know where many cancers come from. Anyone can get cancer, but the prospect, though grim, does not dampen us. We carry on hoping for the best. It's the same with accidents and risky jobs and fate. It's not just the Oriental who is fatalistic. When confronted with the unknowable, the unquantifiable, or things that can't be helped, we're all fatalists. But knowledge changes the equation. Once you know, you're a goner. Once you know that COVID-19 spreads through human contact, it immediately raises the question of what to do about this. Knowledge makes control a possibility and maybe even an imperative. So, even though the unmanageability and mysteriousness of a disease bring it close to the territory of the epidemic, what makes it cross into its threshold is not so much what we do not know about it, but what we do know or think we know about it. And even after the virus has raced around the world, infecting hundreds of thousands in the richest, most scientifically advanced places, we still think we know and can control it. <clears throat> Interestingly, although control and containment have been the leitmotif of our response to the COVID-19 pandemic, until it exploded on the scene this year, the scientific position was that pandemics cannot be controlled. When on March the 11th, the head of the World Health Organization, Director General Tedros Adhanom, declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic, he said, and I quote, we have never before seen a pandemic that can be controlled. We've never before seen a pandemic that can be controlled. And a few days previously, on March the 9th, he said that if COVID-19 was a pandemic, then it would be, quote, the first pandemic in history that could be controlled. So <clears throat> before COVID-19, the scientific understanding was that owing to the ease and speed with which pandemic viruses transmit from person to person, they cannot be controlled. The only feasible approach in a, in a pandemic was thought to be mitigation, that is, trying to limit outbreaks and chains of transmission to clusters and households when they appeared, as we are, for instance, now doing in Delhi and Mumbai. There is a lot of work by epidemiologists, including a large body of work by Neil Ferguson, in which they model potential scenarios for the spread of pandemic influenza. In all of this work, the conclusion is that if you have a sufficiently contagious virus, then limits on social and economic activity, even of a very high order, or worldwide travel bans, 
would be ineffective in stopping the virus and would at best delay its spread by a few weeks. So even though Neil Ferguson insisted on suppression measures for COVID-19, his own work previous to this outbreak <clears throat> spoke against it. In a co-authored paper from 2004 called Factors That Make an Infectious Disease Outbreak Controllable in the journal PNAS, Neil Ferguson makes the case for why such measures would not work to contain a disease like COVID-19. The paper argues that influenza would be difficult to control even with 90%, 90% quarantining and contact tracing because of pre-symptomatic transmission, a feature it shares with COVID-19. This paper says that even if you have a relatively slow virus, if it is infectious before the onset of symptoms, then any kind of intervention is unlikely to be able to effectively contain spread. Similar findings are made in another paper co-authored by Neil Ferguson from 2008 called Modeling Targeted Layered Containment of an Influenza Pandemic in the United States. All the papers I refer to here are on my blog with links and uh, please have a look at them after it goes up. <clears throat> so in this paper, in Modeling Targeted Layered Containment um, in 2008, the there is an analysis of three different epidemiological models for pandemic influenza and it's reported to show that community and workplace social distancing have a comparatively modest effect where the model assumes either high R values, high reproduction number values, or a higher degree of infectiousness at an earlier stage of, of the infection or a scenario where only a small proportion of infections occur outside, outside of the home, educational institutions and the workplace. These are all features of COVID-19. This was also the position taken by the WHO about pandemics. <clears throat> In 2006, uh, it formed a group called the WHO Writing Group, the WHO Writing Group which took out a paper on non-pharmaceutical interventions, which are testing, contact tracing, quarantining, and so on. And it said that, and I quote, the principal difficulties in using non-pharmaceutical interventions to reduce influenza transmissions among humans include the peak infectivity early in the illness. The peak infectivity early in the illness. So if a disease is infectious before or near the onset of symptoms, then reduction of transmission with non-pharmaceutical measures is said to be difficult. And as pointed out earlier, these are features of COVID-19. In this same paper, the WHO writing group concludes that if a novel human influenza subtype behaves in a manner similar to the Spanish flu pandemic, and throughout all that we've heard from the epidemiologists and the lockdowners is that this is like the Spanish flu. And what the WHO is saying in 2006 is that if you get a novel human influenza subtype that behaves in a similar manner to the Spanish flu pandemic, then non-pharmaceutical interventions can only delay or contain transmission during the phase of limited human-to-human -human transmission. And in the pandemic phase, 
different interventions for reducing impact will have to be used. The low likelihood of pharmaceutical of non-pharmaceutical measures being effective, given the practical realities of a pandemic, is emphasized by the WHO in another document, more recent, published in 2017, called the Pandemic Influenza Risk Management Guidelines. <clears throat> this document says about containment measures, and I quote, evidence supporting containment at source is extremely limited with theoretical evidence only. Modeling studies suggest that containment may be possible in near ideal scenarios characterized by low to moderate transmissibility with a basic reproduction number less than or equal to 1.7, very early detection of initial cluster outbreak within 15 to 21 days, a non-urban pandemic epicenter with limited size, density and mobility, a short period of communicability and low rate of asymptomatic illness. COVID-19 breaches all these conditions. It has high transmissibility. It was identified in China at least more than a month, if not more, after the initial outbreak which is much beyond the 15 to 21 day horizon envisaged in this document. Its initial R was estimated at well above the stated threshold of 1.7. It appeared in the large and dense urban center with high mobility of Wuhan and has a long period of communicability up to several weeks <coughs> near the time of symptom onset. But all this was ignored by the epidemiologists and the WHO when it came to assessing the controllability of COVID-19. This brings us back to what I said at the start about the idea of the controllability of a disease feeding into our decisions of what we must do about it. Of course, we cannot ignore the existence of an incurable infectious disease once it appears in our midst. But there are a number of possible responses and the choice of containment as the major pillar of the response, to use Tedros Adhanom's pet phrase, was premised on a mistaken understanding of the controllability of COVID-19. This mistaken understanding came from a very confused and unstable distinction that the WHO has been making between pandemic influenza and internationally spreading viral respiratory infections caused by coronaviruses such as SARS-CoV-2. In its March uh, press briefings, when the WHO was hesitating to declare COVID-19 a pandemic, <clears throat> Tedros Adhanom reveals the fundamental confusion at the heart of his understanding of pandemics by drawing a distinction between pandemic influenza on the one hand and COVID-19 on the other, saying that COVID-19 is highly lethal and so we should not, quote, accept to live with it. But pandemic influenza is also lethal. The whole point of the WHO's previous work on pandemic influenza, which we just went through, was that it kills and kills in large numbers. 
here we need to understand a few basics about viruses. Viruses are of various kinds. The ones that cause the flu are called influenza A, B and C and they have subtypes such as bird flu H5N1 and swine flu H1N1 2009. And then there are coronaviruses. The common cold and some flus are also caused by coronaviruses and in addition they cause more serious illnesses such as SARS in the early 2000s and now COVID-19. The coronavirus that caused SARS was found by the WHO to be relatively controllable as it did not become infectious until several days after the onset of symptoms. This seems to have led to the idea in the WHO that SARS was not technically to be categorized as a pandemic even though it was a virus that spread to several countries at the same time. On the other hand, avian and swine flu outbreaks were considered pandemics even though they were more confined and smaller than SARS. Pandemic influenzas like the Spanish flu were both highly transmissible and lethal. So this distinction between influenza and coronavirus pandemics was never very clear and it created a lot of confusion during COVID-19. Even on March the 9th, by which time COVID-19 had been raging in Lombardy in Northern Italy for several days, with obituaries in the Bergamo papers growing from half a page to eight and more, Mike Ryan, the World Health Organization Executive Director of Health Emergencies, was saying that the WHO was reluctant to call COVID-19 a pandemic because in their opinion it was controllable and they didn't want countries to move to a mitigation approach. This is what he said and I quote, if this was influenza we would have called a pandemic ages ago. Unlike flu we can still push this back. In a flu pandemic you're mitigating in the sense that you don't have an element of controllability you can't stop the virus in any meaningful way, so you focus on reducing the impact of the virus. A control strategy says that you have an element of control and what you do is both seek to control the virus and reduce its impact at the same time. Again, this represents a false understanding of the choices involved in a pandemic. Once you have a pandemic, you no longer have a choice between containment and mitigation. The virus is coming at you from everywhere and you're left with no option but to mitigate. The steps you take may be the same non-pharmaceutical measures, but the effect will be to mitigate. If you operate from this sensible premise of acknowledging the limited impact of these interventions, then you can also weigh in the balance how widely you're going to apply them in the sense of whether you'll apply them to clusters where the outbreak appears and for limited periods of time or whether you go in for a society-wide indefinite lockdown. But the WHO kept digging its heels in with its theory of containment and when social distancing and hand hygiene was seen not to contain the virus, they blamed it on insufficient testing, famously saying, test, test, test. But it is a waste of money and manpower 
to do generalized testing and contact tracing in the belief that this will contain the virus. In a pandemic situation, your testing is always going to be several steps behind the virus. Just one infection needs hundreds and thousands of contacts to be traced. People don't have enough of a sense of this. Just one infection needs hundreds and thousands of contacts to be traced. This takes days. In the meantime, the virus is traveling everywhere. So contrary to what the WHO was saying, in a pandemic, testing and contact tracing cannot be used to stop the spread of infection. They can at best be used to help break trains of tra uh, chains of transmission here and there or to identify places or activities that are particularly exposed to infection and so on. But you have to be acutely conscious of the fact that even while you're contact tracing and testing, the virus is spreading in places of which you are not yet aware. The WHO took the position that to say that COVID-19 is uncontainable was to somehow duck your responsibility about doing something about the pandemic. But this was a big misunderstanding on its part. You have to be clear-sighted about the controllability of the pandemic in order to make sensible and proportionate decisions, knowing that the virus will find people where they are. If you take them off the streets and put them in their homes, it will find them there. If you close businesses but maintain essential services, it will find victims there. If you keep hospitals open, which you have to, it will spread there. If you have people living in communal settings like prisons and old age homes, it will find them there. And this, as we will see, is what happened with COVID-19. So the first and most fundamental mistake that we all made, led by the World Health Organization, was to fail to understand the fundamental uncontrollability of pandemic virus transmission. And this led us to act on the wrong premise that containment was feasible for COVID-19. <clears throat> the other confusion in the WHO's approach was the way it opposed bans on international travel, while at the same time insisting on containment as the central pillar of the COVID response. They even opposed travel bans against China in January, while at the same time insisting that so long as the disease was contained in Wuhan, it would not break out internationally. But how could the disease be contained in Wuhan or any place without travel bans? The COVID experts group in one of their reports state that between January and March, 55 countries repatriated more than 8,000 citizens, more than 8,000 citizens from Wuhan city alone. There would have been even more repatriates if they counted those from the rest of China. And in March, more repatriations took place from Iran and Northern Italy once COVID-19 outbreaks began to be noticed there. 
In many countries at the start of the year, screening was limited to testing for fever. And we know that COVID-19 can spread before the onset of fever. In many places, quarantine of those repatriated was not strictly adhered to. So there was a high chance of infection spreading through these repatriations. And Tedros Adhanam was even questioned in press briefings about the risks of these repatriations as early as January the 30th, but he shrugged at it. If the WHO wanted containment, it made no sense not to have recommended an instant travel ban. In opposing travel bans, the WHO did even more than the Chinese, who did impose internal travel restrictions. When questioned about the travel restrictions imposed in Wuhan on January the 23rd, WHO official Didier Hussein admits that it was a surprise. The WHO was surprised at these travel restrictions in Wuhan. And then he goes on to dismiss it, saying, and I quote his words, we also understand the decision which has been taken in the city of Wuhan was not directly related to a specific evolution of the epidemiology in the city. But this is completely wrong. It shows that the WHO completely misunderstood the Chinese response to COVID-19. In the WHO China Joint Mission Report on COVID-19 that came out a few weeks later in February, it's on my blog, you can have a look at it. The travel ban issued on January the 23rd in Wuhan is emphasized over and over and over and over as the first landmark move by the Chinese government for disease containment in China. So the WHO, even while praising the Chinese response to COVID-19, does not seem to have understood the basic facts about it. At the press briefing of January 23rd, the same press briefing where Didier Hussein made this comment, Tedros Adhanom even went so far as to say that he hoped the ban would be short in duration. Now, I don't agree with travel bans, okay? I'm not advocating that here. But <clears throat> we need to understand the opposition to travel bans, even during pandemics, is actually a long-standing WHO position that predates COVID-19. But this was premised on the understanding that we just discussed, that containment is not feasible for pandemics. And so, in responding, we had to think beyond such bans and, and other non-pharmaceutical interventions. But Tedros Adhanom failed to see how his position on travel bans totally contradicted his position on containment. Even when announcing on January the 30th that COVID-19 was a public health emergency of international concern, P-H-E-I-C, which WHO officials like Soumya Swaminathan later claimed was the date when countries should have implemented full emergency protocols. The first recommendation that Tedros Adhanom made in that very same PHEIC declaration was, quote, first, there's no reason for measures that unnecessarily interfere with international travel and trade. The WHO doesn't recommend limiting trade and movement. 
So, what protocols did the WHO have in mind for containment if not travel bans? Was it plausible for the WHO to advocate pandemic containment with hand washing and cough hygiene? <laughs> but no travel and trade restrictions. The truth is that it was the WHO itself that was not convinced that this was a pandemic and they thought that the whole thing could be contained by the action China was taking internally. Even when Tedros Adhanom was forced very reluctantly on January the 30th to announce a PHEIC, he kept repeating, kept repeating, and you can see all these press briefings are on the WHO um, website as well as on my blog, okay? He kept repeating that this was only being done to enable countries with weaker health infrastructure than China's to prepare for a possible outbreak and that, quote, the WHO continues to have confidence in China's capacity to control the outbreak. Tedros Adhanom doggedly persisted in this utterly, utterly mistaken and unscientific belief, even when, contrary to his confidence in Chinese measures stopping COVID-19 from going pandemic, it burst forth with unprecedented ferocity in northern Italy in March. This is what he says at a press briefing on March 9th when the newspapers at the COVID-19 epicenter of Bergamo in Italy were running obituaries of 10 pages and more owing to this disease. He says, we're encouraged that Italy is taking aggressive measures to contain its epidemic and we hope these measures prove effective in coming days. Far from proving effective, Italy went on to become the worst affected country for weeks, ending with over 2.4 lakh cases and nearly 35,000 deaths. So even when the WHO was lecturing us to take COVID-19 more seriously, they themselves did not have a grasp of just how uncontrollable it was and how, therefore, unsuited their SARS-based containment approach to it was. One of the big lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic is the way this kind of pandemic disease enters a population from many places at once. Donald Trump's characterization of SARS-CoV-2 as the Wuhan virus is not only xenophobic, but also inaccurate. We cannot as yet be sure where or when this virus first originated. As I wrote this paper, there were reports from Italy, Spain, Brazil and the US of SARS-CoV-2 having been detected in corpses and sewage supplies, uh, sewage samples from way before the Wuhan outbreak of November-December 2019. When the virus was identified in China in January, most countries issued airport screening and travel bans for people flying in from China or the Far East. But if you follow the first cases in different countries, you see a pattern of transmission from other countries and people with no travel history to China. More countries had their first imported cases from Italy than from China. And these countries are spread on all continents and include India, Bangladesh, South Africa, France, Iceland, Germany, Norway, Russia, Mexico, Cuba and Brazil. 
Many European countries that detected a few initial cases traced to Wuhan in January did not go into a severe outbreak until cases were discovered in late February and early March from Italy. In Spain, the first cases were detected in the Canary Islands and Tenerife, and these were imported from Germany and Britain. In mainland Spain, the first cases were imported from northern Italy to Catalonia and Madrid. In France, the first cases in February included cases imported to Haute Savoie by a British national returning from Singapore. And the first major outbreak in early March in France from a church gathering in Mulhouse in Autrain, where <coughs> was uh, took place there, where till date no cases appear to have been connected to Wuhan. In the United Kingdom, early cases included imports from Singapore. In Kenya, the first case, which was in mid March, was of someone returning from the USA via London. In Iceland, early cases included an import from Austria. In Italy, early cases included imports from Philippines, Singapore, Romania and Norway. In Pakistan and India, early cases were imported from Iran <coughs> and Italy. In India's first hotspot of Mumbai, early cases mostly came from the US. In the rest of Maharashtra, whose state capital is Mumbai, the first cases came from London, Scotland, France and the Netherlands, among other countries. In Ahmedabad, an early hotspot in India, it has been speculated that President Donald Trump's state visit in late February, which was with a large team from the US, might have imported cases there. In Sweden, thinking the cases were being imported from Italy, owing to some early chains of transmission having been connected to travel there, Early contact tracing in Sweden focused on people with a travel history to this country, to Italy. This was able to quickly contain the cases originating from Italy. But Swedish officials have since discovered that while they were focused on Italy, cases were coming into Sweden from a number of other countries around the world, including Austria. This is a clear example of how contact tracing and other containment measures fail to encompass the basic characteristic of pandemic viruses, which is that they come from many countries at once. It also demonstrates how measures can be misleading in giving the early impression of the infection coming from just one or other place. Tracing back to early cases in different countries, what immediately becomes clear is that while everyone was focused on Wuhan, the virus was already global and being introduced to populations from multiple countries. No one had really grasped the degree to which pandemics are in fact pandemic. Although the WHO and pandemic thinking in general had for decades been emphasizing the connectedness of the world as the main risk and driver of pandemics, everyone reacted in a very unpandemic way by focusing only on Wuhan or China. In a globalized world, it makes little sense to speak of contagion as coming from a particular city or country. By the time you see it somewhere, you have to assume that it's everywhere. It's also pointless to waste time waiting for scientists to figure out whether human to human or community transmission have begun. China's first announcement in mid-January was of 40 cases, but this was its lab-confirmed cases at the time.
Once they were able to tabulate all their cases in mid-February, it became clear that at this point there were over a thousand cases at least and rising. You can see this in the WHO China Joint Mission Report. Once you cross a few dozen cases, the sensible thing is to assume human-to-human -human transmission. SARS, MERS, Ebola, HIV, H5N1, all are viral infections that showed human-to-human -human transmission. There's no reason to assume that any new viral disease will not be the same. So those interested in containment have to understand that in order for travel bans to be effective, they will have to be worldwide and implemented early in the outbreak, even before we're completely certain about the nature of the pathogenic agent, whether there's community transmission and so on. This immediately raises the question of the practicality of such measures, apart from the massive human cost, which I'll go into later. Okay, It immediately raises the question of the practicality of such measures and the potential of, for all these efforts, the potential of all these efforts are being wasted if it turns out that the pathogen subsides before going pandemic. It doesn't work. We have to forget about containment and take sensible mitigation measures where possible, keeping the main focus not on containment as the WHO advocated, but on treatment and support. And we'll discuss this in detail in the lectures to follow. This concludes part three of the lecture series. Thank you for your attention. Today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog, covidlectures.blogspot.com, where the full paper and parts one and two of my earlier lectures have already been published. The lectures are also up on YouTube on my channel under the title Dodgy Science Powerful Ethics and on Anchor and Spotify as podcasts under the title COVID Lectures. Links to the YouTube videos and podcasts are on my blog, covidlectures.blogspot.com. See you tomorrow, 7 p.m. India time, 2.30 p.m. London time and 9.30 a.m. New York time on Facebook Live for another round of the COVID lecture series, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Thank you.